years ago, I was watching a Q&A on the ABC. Now, I didn't watch that show to get views. I enjoyed seeing what other people's views were. And in one episode, there was this ex-politician that was uh, on there, and a lady asked a question, because she wanted to get into politics herself. And she asked, what do I need to do to be able to get into politics? And this politician was, his answer was very direct and to the point. He said, if you want to get into politics, you're going to have to put your values at the, at the door. You're going to have to leave them behind. You're going to have to toe the party line. You're going to have to compromise your values because if you take your values into whatever party she wanted to go into, you're not going to get anywhere. They're not going to listen to you. You're not going to be able to make any changes. You should have seen the look on her face once he said that, and you realise that her career in politics was over straight away. And, and that's definitely no indictment on her, that's indictment on, on the leaders, that you have to toe the party line regardless whether you want it or not. You're going to have to compromise your values to be able to get anywhere. So today we're going to be going through Daniel chapter 3. And... Last, last week, Rudolph, in his sermon, was talking about Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3, about laying aside weights and sins which hinder us, running the race with endurance, and looking unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And there's a bit of overlap between what Rudolph was talking about last week and what we're going to be discussing today. Because today's story is primarily concerned about faith and obedience. And when we talk about obedience, there are many external pressures that the world puts on us that ask us to compromise our values. We may be asked to compromise our values to get ahead and work, to be able to have a little bit more money, to have a little bit more of an easier life, or to get out of a difficult situation. But as we'll go and we'll see through, it's important that we remain strong in our faith, and obey God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we go through and read Daniel 3, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes so we can see what you want us to see, Lord. Open our ears that we can hear what you want us to hear. I pray as we go through and, and read it that we would be seeing what you want us, uh, I pray that we would put ourselves in, in that story and think about how it reflects on us, Lord, and, and ask us to consider, are we compromising our own values, Lord? And do we have faith in you? Thank you, Lord. Amen. So, Daniel 3 starts rather abruptly. We see that Nebuchadnezzar has created a gold statue, but we're not told why he started this, he's created this statue. And we have to go back into chapter 2 to find out. So in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. 
And he's had a dream of a statue, uh, which is gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron and clay. And none of his wise men are able to interpret the dream until God reveals the dream to Daniel. And Daniel then goes and interprets the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's response in, in verse 30, uh, 47, the king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. But only a few verses later, we see that he's building this image. Now, why was he building this image after he'd been told that? Maybe he had selective hearing because Daniel told him uh, that the king, that Daniel tells the king that the God of heaven has given Nebuchadnezzar a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. God has given Nebuchadnezzar everything that he currently has. And he says that the gold head of the statue was Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. But another kingdom was going to come and overthrow Babylon. So, so maybe he had selective hearing, and, and look, let's face it, some of us do have selective hearing, don't we, at, at times? Uh, I can see some of you nodding, admitting that you've got selective hearing, which is, which is good. But what's probably more, more likely is that Nebuchadnezzar is worried that his kingdom is going to get overthrown. So he wants to consolidate his power. He wants to show how strong he is. So he creates this, this uh, statue, and then in verse 2, he says, so, and King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather, uh, to gather the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. He calls all the officials, all the important people. And what do all these important people do? Well, they come on command. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the councillors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The, the literary style of Daniel is quite interesting because there's a lot of repetition that happens in here, and there are a number of lists as well. And we can see here that... Verse 2 and verse 3 are almost identical, except one saying that Nebuchadnezzar is calling the people, and the second one is saying that they just come. Now, whenever there's repetition in the Bible, we've got to stop and, and go, well, why is it there? Because it's, it's, it's emphasizing something. And in Daniel 3, a lot of the repetition is talking about Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance. He believes that he is the most powerful person in the world, and right now, he is the most worldly powerful person in the world. He's heard or he's seen what God can do, but he doesn't care. He wants to be consolidate his power. And it's a bit of a sad sight that all these officials, when they're called, they just come. There doesn't seem to be any questioning. They just come, stand before the image. Then we hear about the command. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music. So here's another list. And so we're going to have this great uh, orchestra. Um, no expenses spared. You come, 
once you hear this music, you shall fall down and worship the God, the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Now we know that God forbids the worship of idols. In Exodus chapter 20, in the uh, Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. And this is pretty direct. You shall have no other gods. You shall not have a carved image. You shall not worship any type of carved image. Do not worship any other god except for me. And in Matthew, 14, uh, Matthew 4, when Jesus has been um, uh, tried in the, in the wilderness by Satan, and, and Satan said to Jesus, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. But in, in Daniel's time, the pagan, in pagan religions, it wasn't an offence to worship other gods. In fact, it was an offence not to worship other gods. If, if you read the Food for Thought uh, this morning, uh, the, the first paragraph says... Though many of us tend to take our freedom to worship how we like for granted throughout many of history, religious freedom wasn't the case. You worshipped as you were told or else. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. They are being told, you must worship or you'll go into the fiery pit. And, and this is why we see that the officers so easily worship this image. That they're being told, so they will do it. It doesn't matter if they've got another god. It's not an offence to their other gods, I mean, their, their fake gods, to then go and worship this image that Nebuchadnezzar has said. And we've got to, this is where we need to start thinking about, well, how does this relate to us? Because doesn't the world have many of their own images, their gods, that they ask us to worship? Don't they have their own values? We, we have Pride Month and we need to worship that for a whole month. And we're being told we need to do that. If we don't, we are then offending people. But they're not... But, but our God, they don't want to worship our God. In fact, they'll be offended if we tell them that you need to worship our God. So, so the world wants to reject God, and this is similar to what's happening here. Even though Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 has said, I want... You know, your God is the most high God, he still doesn't want to worship him as the one true God. In fact, when Nebuchadnezzar says that God is the most high God, he's not saying he is the one true God, he is saying he is the high God above a bunch of other gods. But I'm still going to build a statue and you're going to have to worship this statue. I don't care about your God. And then Daniel uh, chapter 3, verse 7. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down 
and worship the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So not only do we have them come in on command, the second that they hear this orchestra play, they fall down. Again, no questions asked. And can you imagine being there and being told that you must worship, uh, you must worship this idol or you will die? The, the intense burden uh, of, of someone saying you must do this, but you know that you've got internal convictions that say, no, I need to still worship my God. This is not right. And this is why we need to make sure we have strong faith in our God. But this is obviously a big problem for the Jews, as we've already said. They've been told, you must not worship any other God. But admittedly, admittedly, during times of testing, it can be very difficult. Alistair Begg notes a few thoughts that could be going through the minds of the Jews being there, being asked to fall down and worship the image. We only have to do it once. Why don't we just get it over with and then move on with our lives? This statue is a joke. It's not the one true God. What harm could there be? I may fall down. I'm not really worshipping it in my heart. We're not being asked to denounce God. Nebuchadnezzar has been good to us, and he will continue to be good to us if we only do this. God only wants what's best for us. If we don't die, we can continue to be useful to God. And how easy is it for us to fall into these traps? Um, if you only do it once, what if Nebuchadnezzar comes back a second time and says, right, you're going to have to fall down again? Well, I've already done it once. Well, what harm is there to do it again? I, I know uh, Kayla, when she asks us to do something, she'll quite often come back and just go, one more time? And then if we do it again, she'll come back a second time. Just one more time? It's only ever one more time. But each time we do it, we put ourselves in a position that, well, we've already done it once, why shouldn't we do it again? I've had to study um, a little bit of ethics through my job. Now, I don't enjoy studying ethics um, because we've got the Holy Bible, which I, I consider to be the only ethics book that we need. Um, but, but I've had to do it. Um, and there's something in there which is called the slippery slope. And what the slippery slope theory says is that little incremental decisions that we make can have major effects. If, if we make one decision and bow down to an idol, saying that we'll never do it again, we've actually tricked ourselves into acknowledging that, yes, if the same situation comes up again, we've got justification to do it again, even though it is against God's command. So it's really easy to make little compromises which put our mind at ease in the situation. They seem inconsequential, but they can have big impacts down the line. And we need to decide, are we going to be obedient to God or are we going to compromise? Now think about what you're doing when you're compromising. You are giving something up. You are conceding or surrendering something to be able to get something else. Now, so the dictionary definition of compromise is an agreement or settlement of a dispute that is reached by each side making concessions. 
and sometimes compromise is important. Uh, in a marriage, for example, little things like which side of the bed are you going to sleep on? Um, Josie likes to sleep on the, the side that's closer to the door. It doesn't matter if it's left or right, just so if something happens, she can be out that door really quick. Um, I, I know a couple that's had an argument about where does the Vegemite go? Does it go in the fridge or does it go in the, uh, the cupboard? You know, but they had to compromise. But then there are obviously big things as well. Where are you going to live? Which school are the kids are going to go to? Um, all these things where someone has, or both people have to give up something to be able to come to a conclusion and have a happy marriage. But if we compromise God's commands, what are we giving God? Nothing. It's a one-way streak. In fact, we are compromising God's rules for our own benefit. Another definition of compromise is the expedient acceptance of standards that are lower than is desirable. So when we compromise what God has commanded, we are lowering his standards, and the question then has to be asked, are we obeying him? And I'd have to say, no. But the Bible is very clear about obeying God in Deuteronomy. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And in, in that verse, and if we go look at back at Daniel again, and where it says, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him, who are we fearing? Are we fearing God or are we fearing man? Now, Jesus in Matthew, I think it was, said, do not fear the one who can just kill. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul. But again, I say it's difficult in this situation if we're trying to rely on ourselves to be able to, to do this. We need to have faith. Now back to Daniel. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. A little bit of flattery never goes astray, does it? You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre and psaltery in sympathy with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. They're just telling Nebuchadnezzar exactly what he, what he already knows. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Now, again, going back to chapter 2, after Nebuchadnezzar had been told of his dream, he promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's... Uh, He's promoted them over the province of Babylon, so it's possible and likely that he's promoted them over the Chaldeans. So they would not be appreciative of that, so they've been waiting, waiting for a time that they may be able to get their position back. And now they've found, now they've found their, their reason. And you have a look at the three accusations that they've made. They have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods. They do not worship the gold image which you have set up. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these three men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, firstly, I mentioned the three accusations that the Chaldeans made. And the first one, they have not paid due regard to you. So these, these three have been promoted, and I dare say that they've been doing a good job. Nebuchadnezzar has probably been happy with what they've been doing because he, he doesn't mention uh, this accusation when he speaks to these three. But he does mention that you do not serve my gods or you do not worship the gold image. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't wait for an answer. But he actually gives them a way out of the fiery furnace. Now, if you are ready at the time, you hear the uh, sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And again, if we start looking at our own situation, how many times when we are asked to compromise our values, people will give us an option. You just have to, going back to what Alistair um, Begg said, you only have to do this once. It's all right. It's not a big thing. Don't you believe in equality, which is a big one that comes around these days? But the response of these three... Oh, sorry. This one is about... And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? And I think this, this phrase here really signifies where King Nebuchadnezzar is coming from. He doesn't just think that he's a king. He almost thinks that he's godlike. There is no God that can save you from this fiery furnace. If you do not bow down to this idol that I have set up, if you do not worship this image, which is almost like you, if you do not worship me, no one is going to be able to save you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. And what a, what a great response, because what, what they're effectively saying is that we have no defense for our actions. You may tell us that we need to bow down to this image, but that is against our God. From your eyes, we are guilty. But in God's eyes, we have done the right thing. And the reason in verses 17 and 18. In that case, if that is, sorry, if that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. They have faith that God can save them. Even if he doesn't, they'll still be delivered from Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 18. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the, God, the gold image which you have set up. So they initially heard the command from the herald. And it's easy to ignore a herald. You know, we don't need to worry about the messenger because the, uh, the, the 
uh, what am I trying to say? The the effect of not listening to the herald isn't quite there yet. But now they're listening directly to the king and an angry king who literally has their life in their hands. So how, how difficult must that have been for them to stand up and say, we have no defence of our actions, we have done the right thing. But king, you actually don't have the power that you think you have. Whether you send us to the fiery furnace or not, God will save us one way or the other. They're responding to Nebuchadnezzar's claim of which God can save them. Now, God doesn't need to be defended, and they're not trying to defend God. But without a shadow of a doubt, they are telling the king whose side they are on. As I said, what courageous faith that takes to not only stand up to a king, but to stand up to a king who's threatening you with death. Now, there's no indication that God has spoken to them that he is going to save them from the fiery furnace. But it doesn't matter. They will not lower God's standards. They will not compromise their faith. They have great faith that the Lord has the power to save them. But even greater faith that even if he doesn't, they are still doing the right thing by obeying God. Now, we all know the definition of, of faith from Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And when we start looking at faith, Warren Wiersbe notes four different types of faith. Now, spoiler alert, three of them are not saving faith. But it's important that we go through them, because when we go through these trials, what type of faith are we, are we showing? The first one he mentions is gullible faith. So this is faith that will believe anything. Uh, the people will bow down to an image simply because the king has said it. They're not going to question why they're bowing down. Gullible faith is, is based on authority of a man, or is based on popularity or even statistics. Gullible faith will obey if it's popular. The next one is cowardly faith. Of all the people that were there at the image when the music started playing, only three Jews had the courage to stay standing. The other Jews, and we don't know how many there were there, John MacArthur thinks there may have been around 75, um, but all the other people decided to bow. They knew that they should only worship the one true God, but they bowed down to this idol anyway. They had cowardly faith. Cowardly faith will obey if it's safe. The third type of faith is commercial faith. I'll obey and believe you if you do something for me. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. And we see that this quite a lot in, in today's society. You have a look at all, all the advertising and you see you, know, you can get younger by using this cream. It's, it's all of this commercial faith. If I trust in this, then I'll get something back. It's resting on what God can do for you rather than who God is, the holy God. Commercial faith will obey if it's profitable. But these three had confident or courageous faith. They understood that God is able to save them from the fire even though they didn't know that God was, was going to save them from the fire. He could do it, 
They were telling Nebuchadnezzar, we will not bow down to your gold image, because our God is the God who can save us from your hand. Confident faith will obey because it is right, even if the world is against you, even if it means you will lose something, even if it means you will lose everything. I remember, this is a number of years ago, and I can't remember all the details, but there was a shooting in the US. And the shooter went, went in and asked all the Christians to stand up. Went to one girl and said, are you a Christian? And she said, yes. And then he shot her. Imagine what faith that is to be able to stand up in that situation knowing that you're going to die. And confident faith is proven in the fiery trials of life. Trusting in Jesus Christ is the first step. Now I'll put it to you that you can actually gain gullible faith yourself. You can actually gain gullible faith yourself and you can have commercial faith yourself. I think that these are easy. Gullible faith is ignorant. I'll just follow, follow the herd. Cowardly faith protects us in the moment. It gets us out of a difficult situation, even though it doesn't really save us in the long term. And commercial faith gives us something. It's selfish. But confident, courageous faith is a gift. We cannot earn it. It is provided by the grace of God. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego had such faith provided by God. And faith is not dependent on what God does. It is dependent on who God is. And this type of faith can protect us from the evil desires of the world. Now note that I say the evil desires. It doesn't mean that it's going to save us from the evil of this world. We may still be put to death, as I've already given an example. But it gives us the, saves us from the evil desires. It gives us a way to be able to say, no, I'm going to listen to the commands of God. It gives us courage to obey God. In Psalm 31, Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. And I pray that everyone is doing that, that we're all hoping in the Lord, and then in these periods of trials, God is strengthening our hearts so that we can say no, and we can obey God. As Rudolph went through last week in Hebrews 12, in verse 7 it says, Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But we are also instructed to lay aside every weight and sin that ensnares us, in verse 1, and run with endurance. As believers, we are provided faith as a gift, and Jesus finishes that faith. But we must still enact on this faith, not on our, not on our own, but on reliance on God. But courageous faith can have its consequences, as we see in verse 19. The Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Now, when it says heat the furnace seven times more, it wasn't literally heat it seven times more. It was heat it as, as much as it could. 
back in those back in those days, the furnaces could get to around 900 to 1100 degrees. Potentially, if you really wanted to, you could get up to about 1500 degrees, which is enough to melt steel. But through Nebuchadnezzar's angry uh, anger, he didn't just want to kill Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He wanted to destroy them. He wanted to make sure there were only ashes left. In um, 1 Peter, it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith be much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honour and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We go through trials to prove our faith, which again is given by God. But then, as we go through these, we may be found to praise, honour and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing that we can go through these times we can potentially be killed, but we can still praise, honour and glory God regardless of what the outcome is going to be. 2 Corinthians 1.4 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Again, this is an amazing thing. We can go through tribulation and God will comfort us. But then we can use that comfort to help others who are going through tribulations because God has initially comforted us. But again, we need to have that faith in God. Back to Daniel 3, verse 20. And he commanded certain mighty men of valour who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments. So again, we've got another list, so just remember that. In a, we'll come back to that in a second. And were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed these men who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So you think about how hot this was. These men of valour, these soldiers, hadn't gone into the pit, but they were, they were killed because of how hot it was. And one commentary mentions that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were bound not for their sake, because they're going to be put into the fiery pit anyway, and they're going to be uh, expected to be dead within seconds, they were bound to protect the soldiers. So you know when you go and push someone into a pool, you push them in the back, the first thing they do is try and grab around and grab the first thing, and it's you, and they pull you in as well, which is why when you push someone in a pool, grab their arms and push them in. So you bind their arms. I know what you're all going to do this summer. So even though that they were bound to protect the soldiers, the soldiers still died. Because of, because of the king's anger, and I do wonder if it's because of also God's righteous judgment as well. 
And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, fell down, bound in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Throughout this whole chapter, they've been told, you will fall down and worship this idol. You will fall down and worship this idol that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now they're falling down because of their obedience to God. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying uh, to his counsellors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Nebuchadnezzar had seen this miracle with his own eyes. He knew that they had been bound, but now they're walking around freely. It should have taken them mere seconds to die. But the fact that they're walking around means, as he says, it's, they're unharmed. And the fourth person, the term son of God, there's a bit of debate about what that means. Was it an angel or was it the pre-incarnate Jesus? And, and we're not told here. Nebuchadnezzar does later in the chapter use the term angel as well. So many people think that it may have been an angel, but we're not sure. But the fact is, is that God sent someone to protect them. The Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. I must admit, I had a bit of a giggle at this one here because remember the three accusations that the Chaldeans make? One is that they have no regard to you. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't, doesn't really use that one. But here we see that they've been pushed into the fire and it's not until Nebuchadnezzar says, you must come out, that they come out, almost like they're obeying him. They'd stay in there until Nebuchadnezzar says, come out. Sorry, that's just a side note, and something that I kind of noticed about their obedience, uh, their obedience to God, mainly, but they've been focusing. That, that's, yeah, anyway, sorry. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counsellors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose... Bodies the fire had no power. The hair of the head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Now, now this is... The, the miracle of them being saved from the fire, we'd probably look at that and say, that's enough. But no, God goes one step. Their hair was not singed when it should have been gone. Their garments should smell of fire. You know, when you go to a bonfire... You get home afterwards, you have to put your clothes in the, in the wash, you have to jump in the shower and wash your whole body with soap to be able to get rid of that smell. They didn't need to do that. The anger of Nebuchadnezzar had no effect on them whatsoever. And the satraps, administrators, governors and the king's counsellors, these ones who were so willingly to go and bow down to this image, are now the witnesses to this miracle as well. In Matthew 5, 14, 16, it says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, 
and it gives light to all those who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I mentioned about there would have been other Jews there who were just so willingly to bow down. They weren't letting their light shine, but these three men, in their obedience to God, were shining God's light. And these satraps and other officials were now coming out and seeing what had happened and can now see the glory of the one true God. 1 Peter 2.11-12 says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshy lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honourable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, what their conduct was honourable. It may have been against what the king was saying, but they did not compromise God's command. So even when the king came and he, he spoke to them as evildoers, that they are guilty. Again, these officials can come and see what has happened and observe. And, and we pray that they would have glorified God. Now, we, we know that in the last few verses, Nebuchadnezzar says that everyone must worship God. But again, he still doesn't change his mind and still doesn't say that he is the one true God, just the highest of all these other gods. And we know that because in chapter 4, God has some judgment on him, where he goes and becomes like an ox for seven years. But this just shows just another reason why we need to have faith in God and be obedient to God. Because people are watching. Now, I know at work, sometimes I'll, I'll fall and fail. And sometimes I might say the wrong thing. Now, I remember there was one time that I did say the wrong thing. It wasn't necessarily bad. But someone just looked at me and said, I didn't expect to hear that from you, Scott. And straight away going, oh, yep, I haven't lived up to God's standards. But again, that, that's why we need to be living in faith, living in the word, understanding that we need to rely on God. We cannot rely on ourselves. But ultimately, our faith and obedience is for the glory of God. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, it goes through a list of Old Testament characters, and it starts each one by saying, by faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. By faith, Enoch was taken away. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Sarah. By, uh, and it goes through, who through faith subdued kingdoms. This is verse 33. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, and goes through a list of all these things that people did 
through faith through God. But then, verse 36, Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. There is no guarantee that we will be saved from the fire every single time. And this list, going through it, I'm pretty sure we can all say none of us want to go through trial of mockings and scourgings. We don't want to be stoned. We don't want to be slain with the sword. But men of faith have been martyred for faith in God. In verse 39, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. These people who died for their faith were not looking at what, they could, what reward they could get today. They were looking at what reward was promised for them in heaven. Eternal life. Be made perfect through God. And at the end of the day, when we start looking at faith and obedience, that is the most important thing. God did not save Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego from the fire. He saved them in the fire. They still had to have faith and obey, and God still allowed them to go into the fire, although he ultimately saved them. And we will go through the same things. But remember that we go through those trials so that our faith can be improved. So God has never promised we will be saved from the fiery trials of this world. In fact, we will be thrown into fires. Now, I think we have it really easy here in Australia. We're a very wealthy country. If you think about it, we don't have anything to really complain about. I know at at work, we'll, we'll start talking about something and, and we'll say, well, that's a first world problem. Meaning it's not really a problem at all. But things will change. We will go through fires. And all the little trials that we go through, if we're not having our faith in Christ, will be a lot more difficult. So I go back to those four types of faith. Do you have gullible faith? Do you have cowardly faith? Do you have commercial faith? Or do you have courageous faith? Remember that faith in God leads to obedience. Again, saying in Hebrews 11, verse 6, it says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. As I said before, the reward may not be here on earth. It may be the eternal reward. And when we go through trials, we can be sure to know that God has overcome the world. In John 16, verse 33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world.
So what type of faith do you have? Have you trusted in the Lord? And is he testing you right now? Are you relying on the Lord to get through these testing times? Or are you relying on your own ability or otherworldly items? The rewards that God can give, even not in this world, are much more than what this world can give. Let us pray. Dear Lord, you have said in your word that we will go through trials and tribulations. And I pray that as we do that, we would be relying solely on you, Lord. I, I pray that our faith will be bound in you, that we wouldn't be looking to the worldly idols that they have uh, around us today. And I understand, Lord, that some of these, these idols, these pleasures, can be really subtle. And in themselves, they are not bad. But if we rely on them, if we put them ahead of you, Lord, then they become idols. So I pray for all of us here today that our faith would be genuine, that as we do go through these trials that you would be testing us, growing us in faith, helping us to rely on you more, Lord, so that as the big trials come, we would be focused solely on you, not worried about the reward that we can get here on earth, but for the eternal reward, that one day we will be able to be in heaven and look upon you and glorify your name for eternity. But I also pray, Lord, that, as it said in Corinthians, that you are the God of comfort, that through that, we can comfort others, Lord. I, I pray that as we go through these trials, that people would be seeing us, Lord, seeing that there is something different, seeing that we are relying on you, Lord, and that through that, we would be a witness for you, Lord. I pray this in your name.